Welcome back to the program. Back in 1995, my guest Robert Putnam argued in his best-selling book, Bowling Alone, that civic life in America was declining, that we had reached a kind of apogee from things like the closing of the American mind, ideas like Ayn Rand's, and the payoff of increased suburbanization, all added to the general shift away from engaging with people that were not exactly like us. Since then, for the past 20 years, we've added technology, changes in the nature of work, globalization, the influence of money, and political polarization. And today, the proverbial chickens have come home to roost. We are more socially and class divided, more likely to spend time only with people like us, and money and economics seem to be the only determinant of success. At the turn of the last century, as we moved from an agrarian to an industrial society, we saw a major shift in values as we realized that shared values and shared success benefited everyone, that it wasn't a zero-sum game. Today, at the turn of this century, as industrialization gives way to our brain-powered economy, exactly the opposite seems to be happening. Our kids today seem to be more siloed than ever, their future and upward mobility more predetermined than ever before. This is the world that Robert Putnam now writes about in his remarkable new book, Our Kids. Robert Putnam is the Peter and Isabel Malkin Professor of Public Policy at Harvard. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the British Academy and the past president of the American Political Science Association. He's written 14 books translated into more than 20 languages, including Bowling Alone and Making Democracy Work. He's consulted for the last three presidents and the last three British prime ministers. It is my pleasure to welcome Robert Putnam back to this program to talk about our kids, the American dream in crisis. Professor Putnam, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Jeff. It's really good to be back talking with you. Great to have you here. Do you see a direct link between some of the things that you wrote about in Bowling Alone and how 20 years later it has led to this situation that we are looking at, this class divide that we're looking at today? Yes, absolutely, Jeff. The new book um, lays out the evidence that an opportunity gap has increasingly opened up over the last 30 years between rich kids and poor kids America. Um, rich kids and poor kids are in, increasingly divided by the resources that they can bring to bear on their own future and the challenges that they face. Kids coming from college-educated homes are doing better than ever, but kids coming from high school-educated homes are doing worse and worse, and that's opening up um, a big cleavage in American society, um, exactly like the Gilded Age 100 years ago that you referred to in your opening remarks. I agree completely with that parallel. Uh, there are a variety of reasons why this opportunity gap has opened up, and we can talk later in more detail about the measures of, of this opportunity gap, but a variety of causes, partly the growing gap that everyone's talking about now between, in income terms, between rich and, fo and poor fo rich folks and poor folks. Partly it's because, and in a way more important but less discussed, the growing social segregation in America between rich folks and poor folks increasingly Rich folks and poor folks live in different parts of town. They go to different schools. They're less likely to marry across class lines than, than, than we were 30 or 40 years ago. Um, we're moving, 
I hate to say this, and I don't want to exaggerate, but we're moving a little bit more toward an apartheid society in which your 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 location in society and your your connections with other people are driven almost exclusively by how much education and income you have. That's bad enough for the parents. It's even worse for the kids. And the underlying cause of this, I think, is directly related. I'm now back to your original question. Directly related to the collapse of a sense of community among among all Americans. A collapse of what in that earlier book, Bowling Alone, I called bridging social capital. Those connections that once upon a time did actually connect us across class lines and no longer do. And class really does seem to be at the heart of this. That education is some way, a function of that. That really, while it used to be race, it may have been education, it may have been money, that class is really the ultimate divide here. It is. Um, obviously, class overlaps with race. Sure. And I don't want to be taken to be saying that there are not purely racial distinctions in America. But increasingly, what matters, even distinguishing different kids from different races, is not so much their skin color, but their, but their parents' education and income. The biggest gaps, actually, that have opened up over the last 30 years are among white kids, but that is a gap between rich and poor white kids, as well as between rich and poor black kids and rich and poor brown kids. And so, although I'm certainly not saying that that racial divides are a thing of the past, I am saying that what's really new and big and frightening are the rapid growth of these class gaps. When we try to understand what precipitated this, and we look back a hundred years to the, the last shift that we were both talking about, where we went at the turn of the century to this realization that it wasn't a zero-sum game, that shared responsibility, that shared values, that, that the rising tide lifted all boats. How did we move so far from that? Where, where were the tipping points along the way? Well, I think most of the tipping points away from the shared sense of community, away from the more equal distribution of income and education, away from this sense of everybody being in it, all of us being in it together, most of those shifts seem to have occurred in the late 60s, early 70s, maybe even late 70s. And and what I mean is, it's perhaps useful for your listeners to get a sense of what, what I'm actually talking about concretely. Um, a growing gap, for example, in the stability of college-educated families and high school-educated families. Um, it used to be that both rich kids and poor kids were, generally speaking, raised in two-parent families, and that is ever more true among college-educated families. The, the two-career two career family has been combined with the two-parent family for, for college-educated kids, but by now, two-thirds of all high school-educated families are actually single-parent families, and that, I'm not making a, I'm not making a moral criticism of single moms, who are mostly the people, the breadwinners in these homes, but I am saying it's just harder, the evidence is pretty clear that it's harder to raise children if there's only one parent at home. That's one of the examples of the growing gap that is instability of the families. It's also true in terms of the amount of time and money that parents invest in their kids. It's true in terms of a growing gap too in terms of the quality of schools that rich kids and poor kids attend, a growing gap 
in the test scores of rich kids and poor kids, a growing gap in the uh, amount of mentoring that kids get from their communities, even in terms of, for example, the amount of ki- the, 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 the taking part in extracurricular activities, which is somewhat up among rich, rich kids, but down pretty dramatically among poor kids, um, taking part in being involved in commu- faith communities, um, having mentors, on, on many, many measures of how well kids are placed to you know, to succeed in life or not, you can see trend lines going up for kids coming from the upper middle class and going down for kids coming from the working class. And that's the fundamental problem that we're increasingly facing as America. And I think actually it's the most important domestic problem facing our country today. And yet even that problem is caught up in the political polarization we see. I mean, all you have to do is read the Wall Street Journal review of your book, of of our kids, to really get a sense of this and see the finger being pointed at cultural issues back in the 60s, at the welfare state, at government, as opposed to really looking at the larger fundamental societal changes that have taken place. Well, you know, Jeff, we both know that we're living in an extremely politicized, polarized period in political terms. Um, But in principle, I think this issue of equality of opportunity has not historically been, uh, you know, has not been correlated with political viewpoints. It's about the only value, it seems, that Americans still seem to hold in common. Americans are divided about everything, but when you ask... Americans, whether they think that all kids ought to get a fair and equal start in life, 95% of us say yes. This idea that everybody should get a fair start, it goes back to the very first lines of the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. Of course, at that point we meant all white men, and we certainly meant men, we didn't mean women, but the underlying egalitarian promise of the Declaration of Independence is about as close to the core of what it means to be American as you could imagine. And as I say, historically, that has not been divisive politically. I'm, I'm still remain somewhat hopeful that when Americans of both parties realize how great this opportunity gap has become, when they see the stories of poor kids and rich kids in in the book Our Kids, that they will recognize that, you know, we can't let this go on and that there will be a shared recognition of the importance of this problem. You know, when when my team and I started this project a couple of years ago, it now seems kind of silly, but our, our objective actually was to contribute to what we hoped would be the rise of this issue of the opportunity gap to the top of the American political agenda. We, we said to ourselves, let's see what we can do to make it likely that the growing gap between rich kids and poor kids will be the most salient domestic issue in the presidential elections of 2016. And we've made actually a lot of progress in that. I mean, I don't want to say it's all our responsibility. Of course not. But if you listen to the initial statements of really all of the presidential candidates who've announced so far, every single one of them has said that the top, the reason they're running for president is because of this, because of this growing gap between rich, rich people and poor people. Hillary Clinton phrased that in terms of wanting all kids in America to have the same opportunities that her new granddaughter has. Um, Jeb Bush said 
the most important challenge facing America today, and I'm more or less quoting him, the most important challenge facing America today is the growing opportunity gap. Um, even Rand Paul said that he was running for president above all to try to um, increase opportunity for upward mobility and, and to fight um, poverty. So, you know, look, I'm, I don't mean to be silly here. I don't mean that just because everybody says this is the, the most serious problem that they're all going to agree on what to do about it. That, you know, we are a democracy and people have different views. But I do think it's a, a serious step in the right direction that people are beginning to think, everybody's beginning to think we've got to do something about that. Now, then we can have a debate. Okay, but, so what caused it and what can we do about it? What about in looking at the solutions and those solutions that might seem to to address the problem that have kind of classist undertones. For example, one of the things you talk about at the end of the book when you talk about some prescriptions and potential solutions is the importance of of really quality universal preschool. And, And yet... One of the things you hear from from you know others is no, that's not a solution. No, the government shouldn't do that. We need more vocational education, and and while both are probably important, one has more of a classist overtone to it, and and arguably is more perpetuating of the underlying issues. Sure, I you look, I, um, I I recognize that, and but on the other hand, I do think that um, the uh, decline of um, vocational education and the and the um, fact that we've been ignoring, including here in California, ignoring um, the importance of investing in community colleges. I do think that, you know, you might say reversing those problems would be classist because it would be mainly kids from working class backgrounds who'd, who'd use the community colleges and the vocational education. I mean, the all look, the alternative is that these kids are really on the street. I mean, that's the fact, that's the facts of the matter. Now, I agree with you, and of course that's what I say in the book, that um, the, probably the single biggest thing we could do, apart from restoring a living wage to the working class in America, the single most important thing we could do is universal early childhood education, not just pre-K, not just for, for kids who are four years old, but even younger. And you might think, well, that, that sounds like Obama's idea, and therefore maybe it's politic- politically divisive. But actually, the most comprehensive program of early childhood education in America is in the state of Oklahoma, which is just about the reddest state mm-hmm. in America. And, and therefore, I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be naive. Of course, there are going to be political battles about this, as there are about everything. But I still think it's possible that we could have a benign competition for the best ideas, empirically, what really works, to begin to narrow this opportunity gap. I'm, I'm not saying I'm sure that's going to happen, but I think we shouldn't rule it out. Something like that actually did happen exactly 100 years ago in the progressive era. You and I might want to begin to excavate how that happened then, because mm-hmm. I think that period holds really promising lessons for our own period. Two other things that are playing out at the same time here. One is the tremendous rise in, in the number of, obviously, but the power and influence of millennials that are coming into their own. And right. two, the second part of that is this movement that we see in the country now from suburbs to cities and, and, and really right. kind of the reurbanization of America. How are those two issues playing for and against these things that we've been talking about? Well, I do, I'm not sure about the second. I mean, you know, you could say that as people move into the back into the cities that that will begin to, might begin to reverse the, 
the class segregation that we've seen, but I'm honestly not sure that that's true. I think that the, the underlying force toward living around people who are, have the same amount of education and roughly the same income as you do, that, that trend is really powerful. And, and in some respects, it's, it's at least as important as the growing income gap in America. And therefore, though I'd like to think that as, you know, as there is this reurbanization, that will mean that the, the new folks in the gentrifying neighborhoods uh, begin to take more interest in the, in the poorer people who've been living in those neighborhoods. I'm not so sure that that will actually happen. Um, now, the, the issue of gen generational change is really interesting. I, I don't know for sure what impact that will have. In some respects, millennials are a little more, a little more, I guess I would say communitarian than their, than their predecessors, um, the so-called, the baby boomers and the, and the so-called uh, Gen Xers. Um, so maybe I, I, when, I, when I teach my Harvard undergraduates, um, I do sense a, a kind of a sense of, um, of concern about this growing class gap in America, but it's a little early to say, and, and th they're just now starting their families and and of course, the thing, the most important thing to say is actually, millennials are not a single group because there are, of course, a lot of college-educated millennials who are, right. who are in fact prepared. Uh, you know, they're they're prepared for a pretty successful life. But then there are a ton of really ill-prepared, uh, impoverished millennials um, who who you know, in some sense, don't have all that much in common with their more affluent um, peers. The one thing they, they seem to do better, and, and again, the divide is huge, as, as you've alluded to you know, several times, but one of the things that we do see in education today is a little more, and, and, and it's, it's small, and you know, maybe Common Core will give us more, a, a value of these soft skills that you talk about yeah. that are so important yeah. to success. I, well, first of all, I agree with you that they are very important. I agree that they have in the past, or at least the recent past, been undervalued. But in a way, one of the most, <laughs> this is one of the most um, disturbing trends that I outline in the book, and, and sometimes people joke about it, but there's a growing extracurricular gap. That is, mm -hmm. uh, kids coming from high school, from college-educated homes, upper-middle-class kids are more involved in extracurriculars than ever before, both sports and you know, band and chorus and debate and all that. Whereas there has been a sharp fall in participation by working class kids in all extracurricular activities, sports and music and, and you know, the arts and all that. And that's, first of all, that's a major concern because extracurricular activities were invented by American reformers exactly in the progressive era that we talked about before for the purpose of ensuring that all kids graduating from American high schools had an opportunity to learn soft skills. God did not invent high school football. It was invented by <laughs> American reformers who said, we want all of our kids not just to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also to learn grit and, and um, character and teamwork, and those are the skills that are better developed on the playing field than, than in the classroom. It turns out that was exactly true. We now know from hard evidence that kids who take part in extracurricular activities do develop more soft skills. We even know that employers will pay them more because they have those soft skills. And yet across the country in the last 20 years, including here in California, 
school boards have increasingly charged kids for taking part in extracurricular activities. And the inevitable, predictable result is a sharp drop among participation in extracurricular activities and therefore a sharp drop in exposure to soft skills, to the development of soft skills among poor kids. On average, across the, across the country, Jeff, it costs about $400 per kid per term to take part in extracurriculars. So that's, if you have two kids, that's $1,600 a year. If your annual income is $200,000, $1,600 is, you know, not, not anything. But if, you're, if your annual income is $16,000, who in their right mind would pay a tenth of their family's total income for the kids to play sports or, or band or chorus or whatever? I'm using that as an illustration, but actually an important, substantively important illustration about how insidious have been the forces that have led to this growing gap between rich kids and poor kids, including soft skill development. There's also, I mean, in the extracurricular part of it, there's also been a privatization component at work, as there is in so many other things in society today. Yep, that's absolutely right. You can see that unequivocally in the data. Um, Parents from the have side of the of the tracks as distinct from the have nots that those parents are spending more and more money you can see this unequivocally in the data for their kids to play you know um in special private soccer teams or to get special piano lessons or or you know special art schools it's clear in the data that by now the average kid coming from a rich background is the beneficiary of $7,000 a year in support for such activities as those we've talked about, whereas it's about, it's about an eighth or a tenth of that among um, kids coming from poor backgrounds. And that is exactly privatization. It's, it's precisely a a really, it's a bad trend because it means that whereas we used to take response, all of us used to take responsibility for all the kids in town. And now we put that on the shoulders or we've allowed parents to, to, you know, use their own money for that. They've, they've spent their own money on that, which is great if you've got a lot of money, but it's not so great if your parents don't have a lot of money and there's no community provision as there was for most of the 20th century. I mean, this is, you know, I'm not trying to make America become like Sweden. I'm just trying to make America become like America in which everybody's kid was to some extent, the responsibility of the whole community, not just their parents. Talking about Europe, what do we what do we understand? What can we learn when we look at the way class divide has played out in England and France, places where this kind of class divide has been woven for for centuries almost into yeah. the cultural DNA? I I think there's no doubt that uh, that historically now, if we talk about compar- comparisons over long periods of history, one of the major advantages that that our country has had is that we have been more open to talents coming from unexpected parts of the social hierarchy. Um, and that's another way of saying we have not had an aristocracy in this country, unlike those in, in many European countries. In the last 50 years, that's changed. It's changed in two ways, actually. One is that the Europeans have now moved toward, you know, more egalitarian norms so that people from lower class backgrounds can rise higher now than they used to. That's, that's clear. They've been moving in, the, in that direction. And the other is that we're moving in the opposite direction. We're becoming 
you know, I want to, I don't want to overstate this, but the fact of the matter is we're moving more and more toward a society in which the most important decision that any kid makes is when they choose their parents. If you choose your parents, you choose, if you choose well-educated parents, you're, you're, you're sort of, you know, set for life. But if you choose, um, less well-educated parents or you, or you say, I don't care, give me whatever you've got there. And, and you end up with less educated parents, your goose is cooked. And, obviously we don't choose our parents. The point I'm trying to make is it's fundamentally deeply un-American and deeply unfair to have your parents' background matter more than your own skills and, and energy in, in predicting your own, you know, your, the outcome of your life. When we look at this, where do we see the role of the business community in this? Because arguably, if we keep going down this path, it's going to have an adverse effect on, on corporate America as well. They have yep. a responsibility in this. Absolutely. I mean, it's partly a matter of responsibilities. That's certainly true. But it's even more a matter of what uh, Tocqueville called self-interest rightly understood. Mm -hmm. Because improving the opportunities for upward mobility for poor kids is not a zero-sum game. My grandchildren will not be hurt if we do more for poor kids. They, my grandchildren, who are, you know, who are grown up in a more affluent environment, they will be helped if we also help kids coming from poor backgrounds. There are different econometric estimates of the costs, the lifetime costs of, this, of the current 25 million poor kids in America, their, their burden on the rest of the society over the course of their lifetime, the, the, the median estimate is something like $7 trillion, trillion with a T. And that's not because we imagine we're going to have to pay welfare to them. Even if we hardened our hearts and didn't pay a penny for welfare, there would still be huge costs, partly for criminal justice problems, partly for health problems, but mostly, and this is now coming back to the role of business, mostly because foregoing the talents of 25 million kids just because their parents didn't have very much money or education, that's a waste of talent, a big waste of talent. Let me give a practical example. I'm working with a group in New Hampshire where I live. That, are, that This group is trying to encourage the state of New Hampshire, a low-tax state, to spend much more money on early childhood education. Some of the strongest supporters of higher taxes in New Hampshire to support early childhood education are the New Hampshire business community because they're worried about their future labor force. Where are we going to get talented kids to work in the industries or the industries of the future in New Hampshire if we just, you know, discard a third of all the kids growing up in the country? That's a pretty, to a, a businessman that's foresighted, that's a pretty powerful argument. And that's why in New Hampshire, I'm not sure how, whether we're going to win or not because New Hampshire is a, is a, is a you know, conservative, low-tax state, but the business community is on the right side of that issue. It's interesting because it works on both sides of the business community, one in terms of the labor force, as you're talking about, and all ultimately in terms of the size and the power of the market to buy whatever it is that they're selling or making. Yeah, no question about it. Um, the U.S. Uh, GNP is roughly 4% a year lower than it would be if these poor kids were fully participating in the economy. And, and part of that is on the supply side, as I was saying, and part of it is on the demand side, exactly as you're saying. But the major underlying point is this is not a zero-sum game. Everybody, my, kid, my own grandchildren will be better off. They will be richer if we live in a society in which we've also brought along kids from the other side of the tracks. And that's what we're not doing now. 
Robert Putnam, his new book is Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis. Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks, Jeff.